Hey Taylor, how are you? Hey Stuart, how are you doing? Yeah, 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 good. Thank you very much for coming to join all, join me and kick off season three of my podcast. Thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I think I've followed your page for quite a while. I think even since maybe the beginning of my, me doing my podcast because I went on and started following everything related to CHD <laughs> that I could find. And sure. I found your story really interesting mm. and you always look very busy so I was never quite sure if it was going to be a good time to get to chat to you <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically as I ask all guests if they can just give like an introduction of themselves and what their CHD journey has entailed so far in their life. Yeah of course um, so my name is Taylor um, as some of you know I am the kind of owner and operator of the Fontaine with a Future social media platform, if you will. I was born in 1997 and was found to have a single ventricle heart disease consisting of tricuspid atresia, transposition of the great ventricles and dextrocardia. Um, and interestingly, I actually wasn't diagnosed until I was six months old. Um, so I went on for quite a few months before issues started cropping up, um, but I received um, both the Glenn procedure as well as the Fontan procedure and was a completed Fontan when I was about one and a half, close to two years old. Um, so that was kind of my medical journey. I was pretty fortunate growing up after my major surgeries. I really didn't run into a lot of complications or issues aside from just the normal, not always feeling great um, growing up, um, but that was essentially it. Um, and then now, as I've kind of grown up, um, I went through college and I'm currently actually a fourth year medical student um, going to school in Philadelphia with the goal of eventually becoming a pediatric cardiologist. Oh, wow. That's that's really And I'm guessing that did that interest come from your being born with a heart condition. Obviously, you would have shown a lot more interest into things and um, you must have just decided that was the course you want to take in your career and is it, is it how is that because like that just seems like you obviously live with your heart condition and mm -hmm. everything you've gone through do you feel it benefits you when you talk to other patients or yeah when you because I'm guessing you get put on placements and things in other hospitals don't you and yeah kind of work in the wards yeah for sure so I think yeah definitely Without my cardiac diagnosis and medical history, I mean, I don't even know if I would have gone into medicine, but I think just my early exposure to the medical field and what it means to be a patient really got me interested in what my career could look like down the road and what I could do to possibly help contribute to the medical field. So certainly I, I got very interested and even growing up, I love to read books about anatomy and physiology. I was always super interested in trying to join any studies or research that might be going on at my hospital about single ventricle patients and things like that. Okay. So I think all those different things really fueled my interest to pursue medicine. Um, I certainly have found having my personal background as a patient to be very helpful in relating to patients and families and just being able to talk to them or empathize with them in ways that other physicians are not able to. And I think yeah. there's many physicians out there yeah. who 
are so wonderful even if they haven't had those experiences but it's i think especially nice to just really be able to relate to patients on a slightly different level um, especially when it comes to chronic illnesses or conditions that we can't really fix or cure and we kind of have to learn how to live with them despite some of the the drawbacks that might come with a condition or diagnosis well definitely and it's like it must be such a neat like a relief for parents and that when they like could hear you've got that experience from what you've gone through and mm -hmm. you know it's always what and I, I quite like that I've spoken to a few people that have gone into the medical mm -hmm. um career and they all say the same thing it's great having that CTT background themselves so it always helps with that sure. um but it's quite interesting like because you're what I've got from your Instagram with the Fontan Fontan with for a, with a future with mm -hmm. a, yeah not for a future <laughs> with the future <laughs> I'd never heard of a Fontan mm -hmm. until I spoke to a girl my first season and I don't like I don't know if there's people maybe just feel could be just jumping on listening to you or um haven't listened before could you go into a bit more detail of what the Fontan is and what all how all that came about yeah, absolutely. So the Fontan procedure is kind of like a general word or category we use for a type of palliative heart surgery um, that really addresses patients who have different types of single ventricle heart defects. So I think most commonly it's associated with patients who might have HLHS or hypoplastic left heart syndrome, um, but it can be used in a lot of different cases. Like for example, I have tricuspid atresia, which means I actually have hypoplastic right heart syndrome. Um, and the Fontan procedure is basically a strategy to try to circumvent the fact that one ventricle is not functioning and is not able to pump blood um, and essentially converts the heart to just a single ventricle heart that's still able to circulate blood effectively throughout the body without um, too much blood mixing. So basically in the procedure, which is carried out over a series of stage surgeries, um, usually about three is typical, um, they basically connect all the venous blood flow. Um, instead of returning to the heart and being pumped to the lungs, they return the venous blood flow directly to the blood vessels or vasculature flowing to the lungs. And then the blood then comes from the lungs into the one working ventricle and is pumped out to the body. Um, so it kind of creates this way where the blood can still circulate through the body, um, but the blood is moving passively into the lungs as opposed to having that pump that typically will help pump the blood to the lungs. So that's kind of an interesting difference and the anatomy can get very complex and it can vary from person to person, but that's the general principle or idea behind the Fontan procedure. Um, and as many people who have the Fontan procedure know, um, it's a really great way to increase survival rates um, through childhood, but there are certainly still are some downsides or sequelae to that kind of unusual circulation in the body down the road. All right. And how long would, like, once that procedure has been, I guess it's just one procedure for life. Is that how it works then? Or would it have to be later on down the road repaired or even replaced? Does it work like yeah. that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it really depends on person to person. Um, I know there are certain people who go throughout their life who may require different revision surgeries um, to kind of either 
you know, expand or change the conduit that's introduced into the body to complete the Fontaine circulation. Um, there's other people who might over time require valve replacements or just other tune-ups within the heart. Um, and of course, there are some people who unfortunately due to their kind of heart condition and how their body is handling their Fontaine circulation, um, they may eventually require a heart transplant. Um, so it's certainly not for everyone a one and done procedure and they never need any interventions, but it's just very variable depending on the patient and their needs. All right. So like you're, you were, were you three when you got yours done with that baby or six months old? Yeah. So when I was six months old, I had one of the surgeries that right. is in the Fontan series. And then when I was about one and a half to two years old, I had the second surgery that kind of completed the Fontan procedure. Um, typically, most people will have depending on their underlying cardiac anatomy, they may actually have a series of three surgeries. Um, but because of my anatomy and um, partially because I was diagnosed so late, um, I really only had two, but the most typical pathway would be a series of three surgeries. And how, after you had your surgeries, obviously you were really young and you said you didn't really get much bother growing up. So even now, when you're older, are you, going about quite well or is there days where you can feel worse than other days and have you I take it you haven't got anything else coming up in the future surgery wise or anything yeah fortunately um nothing coming up in the future surgery wise as of yet um I said I, I've been really fortunate my entire life to really be very physically active and feel like I could maintain that from a cardiovascular standpoint um all growing up, I trained in classical ballet, um, which was a pretty rigorous time commitment and activity level. And now that I'm in medical school, I don't really dance anymore, but I still am able to maintain a pretty robust exercise routine, which I think is really important to my heart health as well as just my overall physical and mental health. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I really don't feel like I have a lot of cardiac symptoms or anything like that. Um, I think one thing that I have struggled with all my life is that I'm very sensitive to dehydration and okay. extreme heat. Um, so if I have a day where I'm really not drinking enough or things like that, I tend to feel dizzy and fatigued. Um, but that is fortunately something that has an easy fix of just making sure I'm drinking enough fluids. Um, so that would probably be why one major drawback. Um, another thing, like I mentioned, is extreme temperatures or heat. Um, I love the beach. I love being outside when it's warm. Um, but certainly doing lots of strenuous activities in the heat, like running, playing sports, things like that. Um, I really tend to not do well in those environments. And again, just feel really fatigued and nauseous um, and just not myself. So those are kind of two limitations that I've really struggled with throughout my life. Um, and those are just things that I know how to kind of modify my fluid intake and, you know, trying to find places that are cool and things like that to make sure that I'm caring for myself. That's great. And I'm guessing with your studying as well, like you're on your feet all day with that. Mm -hmm. So, and long hours, I'm assuming that when you're on working, sure. uh, how do you feel after those kind of days? Is that hard going or have you managed to adapt because you're Obviously, like you said, you keep yourself as fit as you can right. anyway. So I'm guessing it doesn't affect you too much in that way. 
Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who works in the medical field can attest that when you come home after a long day, you feel pretty exhausted, whether or not you have a single or double ventricle. Um, but I will say, I feel like overall, I've been able to maintain kind of the physical demands that is working in a hospital and walking around and rounding. Um, I will say during my surgery rotations, um, some of those long hours standing in the operating room could be a little bit strenuous and I would struggle sometimes with getting faint or dizzy in the operating room, um, which I know can be a common thing even for people who don't have a single ventricle, but I think for me it was definitely a recurrent problem and one that, you know, I would wear a compression sock. Um, but fortunately, the surgeons and medical teams that I worked with on those rotations were very understanding um, when I needed to sit out. Um, and I was very good at knowing when I was going to need to sit down so I wouldn't fortunately faint um, or pass out in the OR. Uh, but that was definitely one area. Yeah, <laughs> that's unfortunate. And it happens sometimes to medical students, even when they don't have CHD, um, you know, sometimes it's a right really, of passage. Just from the standing for so long. Yeah, just it? from the standing in the OR. If there's bright light, sometimes it can be really warm. Um, but I think that was just something that I noticed um, probably affected me, I think, a little bit more than other people just because of my cardiac anatomy and circulation. Yes, my only experience of an operating room has been getting surgery, so I'm usually asleep and so sure, I'm not yeah. used to the long lying down, head long standing yeah. even. I noticed as well, um, it was just recently, I was, I was down and seeing my cardiologist on Monday, so I was <laughs> having a look through your Instagram and I noticed you'd recently done, a, you've got your own podcast, of course, mm -hmm. um, and you've done an episode about cardiovascular health with exercise. And it just happened to be, I was speaking to one of my, the nurses in my hospital mm. about exercise. Mm -hmm. And I was saying how with like in CHD, it's very difficult to find something to do. Because I, I like right. most people, I like doing sport, but mm -hmm. I can't do the sport that the level right. is even required for just mucking about and things. So mm -hmm. I was saying, I was like, the there needs to be a more of a niche towards helping safety people be able to get a benefit and not overdo it. And then, have, fun enough, you just start <laughs> someone about that. It, I, I don't want to kind of take away from what you the episode talked about, but mm -hmm. would you kind of go into that a wee bit, if you don't mind? Yeah, of course. Um, I think physical fitness when you have CHD is always challenging because I think sometimes it's hard to distinguish between okay, what is, you know, the, this exhaustion I'm feeling when I'm working out, how much of it is attributed to the fact that I have CHD um, and I, you know, my heart is just not able to work at the same level as other people's um, and how much it is related to the fact that maybe I'm just a little bit deconditioned and out of shape. Um, I think there's a lot of people with CHD who it's, it's intimidating to think about exercise, to think about physical activity. Um, and you may have even been told in the past by your cardiologist or your doctor to avoid certain forms of activity um, or, oh, you know, don't push your heart rate this high or don't lift super heavy weights or things like that that might even make you a little bit fearful about trying to exert yourself or try different activities. So I think all those obstacles can be very challenging to navigate. Um, and I think on top of that, everybody, everyone is just a little bit different in their bodies capabilities and their athleticism, different things like that. Um, 
So, but I think what's really important is I think um, it's super important to just try to find activities that you enjoy um, and try to find activities that you really can um, kind of commit yourself to, commit your time to, and slowly push yourself um, towards possibly doing more and more. Um, I think it's, you know, you can start out very slow at something um, and you can kind of see over time how your body responds to an activity. Um, and I think a lot of people are surprised when they realize, wow, like I actually do, I, I can do more than I, I thought I could or yeah. I'm more capable than I first realized I was. Um, and I think it's a fine balance for everyone. Um, and I think it's always important, of course, to kind of do that um, with your cardiologist or with somebody who can just make sure that your heart is you know, able to withstand the load and the stress. Um, but I think for the majority of people with CHD and specifically with Fontan circulation, there are very few adverse events that really happen when people exercise. I think a lot of people are afraid that, oh, you know, if I work out too hard, I'm going to hurt my heart. Um, and really, we, we don't really see that a lot. Um, I think obviously, of course, there's special circumstances for everyone. Um, and I recommend that everyone get a stress test um, or an exercise test, just where they can really be monitored in a controlled condition to make sure that, okay, everything is truly safe. Um, and it's safe for me to push myself in this way. Um, but I think you know, we can do a lot more than sometimes we give ourselves credit for. And I think when we can find activities that we love in an environment that is supportive and allows us to take breaks um, and other things, we can really still um, find a lot of fulfillment through physical activity. Definitely. And that my my problem is like, I know I need to get fair with life mm -hmm. and more health, uh, more healthier as well. Mm -hmm. And it's the getting started, you know, that yeah and finding that area that you like what you want to do and and, and find you have to enjoy it as well that's the thing you can't just yeah. you don't want to be slog, slogging away at something and making yourself miserable while doing it and that's the issue I have finding that because I know I, I need to get my my heart in a healthier position and right. like I'm on so much medication so it's probably better that I do <laughs> and that's what I get that's what I get told every time I go down to my cardiologist right. <laughs> but um it's like very important all that health mm -hmm. and I've mm -hmm. been learning more about that mm -hmm. recently than like I've always known it but more it's kind of more put into me now that Sorry. The, even like the little things like blood pressure and all that kind of things makes a big difference absolutely because um, I've noticed even losing a little bit of weight changes mm -hmm. everything like you know it's incredible yeah it really is and with your page, your font mm -hmm. app for with the mm -hmm. future, you, you use that for your, you got your podcast mm -hmm. and you use it to share your life stories on it as well, like all your, everything that you've gone on. Is there anything else you use it for? Is Do you let people come and connect to you? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, and really I started my page, I think in 2021, um, just because I was really interested in sort of investing more in the CHD community. Um, I think, you know, growing up, obviously, I knew I had a heart condition, but I didn't really know a lot of other people my age who had a similar heart condition. And I also was aware that there's a large population of families who are maybe receiving a diagnosis of CHD for the first time and maybe don't know who to turn to or you know, where to hear from other people about their experiences. Um, so I think that was kind of my motivation to start my page. Um, and I've really used my page 
definitely as a, a tool or a way to connect with other both patients and families um, and share my story with them, as well as also a platform to help educate people um, about different aspects of heart health um, and Fontan circulation. Um, I think there's lots of really wonderful cardiologists out there who do a great job explaining things, but uh, Fontan um, circulation, some of the cardiac care and things that go into caring for a patient with CHD, they can be really complex and challenging to understand. Um, and sometimes it's nice to have a second or third time around review of the information. Um, so I love kind of trying to use my medical background and my understanding as a medical student and future physician um, to really help break down important information and important tips and tools uh, for patients and families to really try to help them achieve a deeper understanding of what their heart condition is um, so they can better advocate for themselves, as well as maybe learn some, you know, little tweaks or things they could make even in their own routine day-to-day -to, -day, um, to ensure that they're really feeling the best they possibly can feel from a cardiac standpoint. Yeah, how do you feel the CHD community is on Instagram and, and <laughs> even Facebook and things? Like, I yeah. find that amazing because... I, yeah. know, I only started doing this in 2021 as well mm -hmm. and like same as you I didn't know I only knew a handful of people that live yeah. like, in my country in my country and I'm speaking to people all over the world yeah. and people have the same condition as me and everything yeah. and I've found it amazing how even and I say this all the time so people make incredible miss hearing about it but mm -hmm. like I'm amazed of the amount of like this people the same conditions mm -hmm. but so very different way like their stories have gone yeah, like absolutely. What they've went through and compared to other, yeah. and like even medication-wise and all that's amazing. Right. And being able to see all that and connect with all these yeah. people through, like I wish I had that when I was younger. You know, because mm -hmm. we had we had we had like groups and things, but we never had social media. Didn't really, well, didn't exist. When we were, right, we were, absolutely. Showing my yeah. age there. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I think one thing I was so surprised about is just how international the community is as well. Um, I feel like I've not only just met a lot of patients my age in the States, but I really met people from all across the world. Um, and I think it's so interesting as well to compare kind of like different treatments as they vary from country to country um, and just different patient experiences in that way. I think social media is always one of those things that's a little bit like a double-edged sword. Um, I think it's great. You can make lots of really great connections with individuals um, and really build friendships and things. But I think conversely, sometimes it can also be, you know, a little bit anxiety provoking, um, depending on the people you come in contact with, the stories you might hear, um, the type of information people share about what's going on in their life or their health. Um, so I think it's been something really lovely um, that I absolutely love. And I've been able to meet people that I've met over social media and feel like I've found a community. Um, but I think along with that comes times where it's like, um, good to sometimes step away and take breaks or take pauses just because sometimes there's just a lot of information out there that can be really heavy to kind of carry and read yeah. through and learn about um, for different people. Definitely. And how with social media as well, as a medical and like doing that as a profession, do you feel, do you tell your patients to go look on Instagram and mm -hmm. Facebook for these people in stories or is it kind of... <laughs> Like, like you were just saying there, you don't yeah. really want to because there's obviously the yeah. overkill of it in a way. Yeah. 
I think there's definitely, you know, certain people or accounts that I, I would be one to direct somebody to just because of like the content available and kind of the messaging. Um, I think every patient is different. I think there's a lot of families and people who have really found benefit in connecting with other families and kind of taking notes and learning about how their cardiac care was or how their journey was. Um, and it can be helpful for our family and also informative um, so they can better advocate for their child um, and make sure they're asking the doctors for the right things or seeking second opinions and things like that. Um, I think it's really dependent on the patient. I think, you know, if I were to have a patient who was really anxious um, or really concerned, um, you know, I think there are some aspects of social media that, like I said, can just really cause people maybe to spiral. Um, and I think it's also important, you know, not everyone who's on social media is a doctor. Um, and sometimes the information they share may not be fully accurate, um, or might be very, very specific to their situation, but not necessarily applicable to somebody else. Um, so sometimes it can be really easy to, you know, look at someone, see what's happened in their story and what's happened in their life, and maybe fear that that might be something that would happen to you. Um, but I think it's sometimes hard to take these things at face value, um, just because there's so much variation. Um, and there's a lot of pieces that you don't know about that own person's story or journey um, that might even preclude that same thing from happening to you. So sometimes it can just be hard to navigate those different things um, and kind of know what to listen to you or what to think about and what to also maybe take with a grain of salt. Yeah, because that's when if I've been reading things and I see people like asking for advice and I've noticed I've I've recently started following as well Reddit. Mm-hmm. It was like a CHD Reddit. And there's mm-hmm. always a lot of people looking for advice on like their children that have gone through things. And I often tell them as I tell them I, the advice I give is probably poor advice. But to go follow like myself on Instagram and listen to the parents that I've had episodes with mm. talking about like that if you hear I feel if you hear stories mm-hmm. of others, that's what I started this for was because I found over COVID, a lot of people were obviously mm-hmm. isolated and they weren't getting to hear other people's stories. Right. So I felt like if you share the stories, that's why I love doing them. Mm. You, you also get a lot of positive stories, but this, sadly, there isn't, it's not all positive in the CHD. Right, and I think that it's important is hearing all the stories to know that there's different ways of going about it. And mm-hmm. what might work for you might not work for someone else, you know. Right. But it's, social media is dangerous, but it's also really rewarding at the same time. For sure. And for yourself, for um, what is the fu- what is the future for yourself? You've got how many years left of medical school? Yeah, so I'm about to graduate medical school this May, which is very oh wow. Um, but from medical school, then I go on to residency. Um, so I've applied into pediatric residencies, um, and I'll kind of do the match, so to speak, which is where they essentially assign you um, the program to go. Um, but I'll I'll match in March. Um, so and then I'll start residency in June of this year. Um, and essentially, pediatric residency is three years. Um, and then after pediatrics residency, I'll hopefully go on to complete a fellowship um, in cardiology so that I'll then be specialized as a pediatric cardiologist. Um, and cardiology fellowships usually range between three to four years. Oh, wow. um, 
So I still have about six or seven years left of training per se, um, but residency. And you've done four already. I've done four of med school, yeah. Right, wow. That's a lot of studying. And, <laughs> yeah, it's um, a lot of studying. <laughs> um, and... But the nice thing about um, residency and fellowship is that it's a lot more hands-on. You're really just kind of working in the hospital in and out. So it feels much less like school and feels a little bit more kind of like working and training. Right. And is that um, all where you live then? Or well, does it not, like when you get that match, does that, could that be anywhere in the States? Yeah. So it could be anywhere that I applied to for residency. Right. Um, so I could end up either um, on the East Coast, kind of where I've been living, or in the Midwest, or even on the West Coast. Um, so I have quite a different couple of location options. The West the West Coast, that's, well, that basically, <laughs> that's, that's the other side of America, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's quite a, like a travel. Um, yeah. Are you, were you born in the East Coast then? Yeah, I was born in the East Coast. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, I am, um, I married and my husband is also in medical school. So we're okay. actually matching together to residency. Um, so he's from the Midwest. So we'll see All where right. we end is up. Is there a preference to where you want to go? Or is it kind of... <laughs> um, I think there's a couple places that we're very excited about. I would not be surprised if we ended up in the Midwest or the East Coast. Um, is, um, my, my geography is shocking for America, so apologize. If I oh, that's is, okay. it, is the Midwest like Michigan and... Yep, absolutely. Um, that's yeah. the only place I know. That's the only place I can give you this. Yeah, like Michigan, Illinois, Iowa, kind of oh, those okay. states. Yeah. yeah, and then East Coast would be Pennsylvania, New York, Maryland, yeah. Delaware. Yeah. Excellent. So six years left of medical school, and then that when I guess you obviously where you get put in your match is that for the six years completely. Or is it three years residency, then is it another place? Yeah, that's a great question. So typically the match, um, it's just for the first three years for pediatric residency. Um, but because I'm doing a couples match with my husband, um, who is actually applying to be an orthopedic surgeon, his training is a little bit longer than mine. Um, so probably depending on where we end up, um, I'll probably end up staying in that same place for fellowship um, just because I'll be finished up with my residency a little bit before him. Oh, great. <laughs> and <laughs> is there a lot of competition between the two years with medical things? Oh, God, there's two different uh, spe special subjects. I'm guessing there's not so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we can definitely be competitive with one another. Um, but I really think because we're going into two such different things, um, there's really not a lot of competition between us from a residency standpoint. Um, I know just generally speaking, orthopedic surgery is much more challenging to get into from a residency standpoint than pediatrics. Um, so because of that, I think it's been a little bit um, just some more more pressure and more um, difficulty kind of making sure that my husband's application is really top notch. Um, but I think both of us are, have been really great applicants this year. So I'm, I'm excited to see where we end up. That's amazing. And it's I find it incredible that to like go into the like medical like career, like because I'm well, all my knowledge of medical careers yeah. is from TV shows and, sure. <laughs> and from be, being in hospital most of my life and right I just like when, when I speak to my cardiologist I just find it amazing like the information they, they have yeah. on everything and it like it's just 
unbelievable and like all the different like the the um studies and things it's amazing the like difference as even from the years that you've been studying have you noticed the technology changed a lot even in the four years from starting school is a lot like yeah i think there's definitely there's always changes happening in the medical field um you know i think Technological changes can really vary from field to field in medicine. Um, you know, for a while, cardiology was really kind of changing and, and growing in leaps and bounds. Um, and now maybe we're seeing more growth and change in certain fields like neurology and other places. Um, I think a lot of the information you learn in medical school um, overall kind of stays pretty standard from year to year uh, just because there's a lot of you know base knowledge about anatomy and physiology and things like that um, that really they don't change um, over time um, but I do think it was interesting for myself kind of seeing the changes and adaptions in the healthcare landscape during COVID because um, I think there was a lot of changes more from that perspective during my time in medical school um, that really has changed how you know medical education is administered um and how people interact in the hospital yeah the, i guess because obviously your studies would have fallen right into that mm -hmm. um time of covid and i don't know so like with america it would be a bit different but did you have to do a lot of home study then yeah so covid kind of hit um during my the second semester of my first year of medical school um and at my school the first two years of medical school it's really just book learning um so you're not in the clinical setting yet um but i know there are a lot of people who were on clinical rotations who during the sort of initial um surge of covid were pulled out of clinical sites so i was fortunate that you know my medical education a lot of it was self-study already and self-paced learning so a lot of my education didn't change very much um, i spent a little extra time at home but it wasn't a huge change um, but i think moving forward to clinical rotations when i actually was in the hospital there were just a lot more precautions taken um, with regards to masking and protective equipment um, and certain patients that we weren't allowed to see um, for a while we we're not allowed to interact with COVID patients. Um, and sometimes even we would do things like rounding virtually uh, just to prevent um, too much contact between um, healthcare providers and patients. But I think things are loosening up a little bit um, and I've been able to you know, go in and see COVID positive patients um, and do other things uh, still able to kind of interact with those patients. And with having a safety, you were obviously high risk, did that? Mm -hmm. What are you at all going into those situations or were you quite chill yeah. about the whole thing? Yeah, Um. so I knew kind of throughout COVID that being CHD technically put me at a higher risk. Um, I think it was interesting during the pandemic, they had actually um, over time put out a study where they really studied a lot of different adults with different types of CHDs and they kind of looked at their experiences with COVID. Um, I think for a while it was assumed that patients with Fontan circulation, because a lot of us have lower oxygen saturations and um, pretty severe cardiovascular disease, um, that we would be at high risk and very sensitive um, to COVID infections. But um, actually a lot of research kind of revealed that the majority of us actually did okay through COVID infections and didn't necessarily need to be hospitalized or 
things like that. Um, so I think having that information gave me um, just a little bit more comfort going into those situations. Of course, if I ever saw a patient or if I see a patient today with COVID, I, I always put on an N95 mask and make sure that I'm all gowned up and protected appropriately. Um, I know I've received my vaccinations as well, so um, there's a little bit less concern. Um, but I think I was comforted by the fact that um, despite some of the fears and kind of unknowns about COVID, the research and studies done on patients with CHD overall was was relatively favorable when it came to outcomes and how people did with the illness. Yeah. Have you had COVID yourself? Have you? Yeah. You get it? Yeah, I got it. I think last year, last January, like the Omicron variant when everyone was getting it um, here in the States. And, you know, I definitely I felt lousy for a week. Um, I really didn't have a lot of concerning respiratory symptoms. Um, and actually, after a week, I felt like I was able to kind of recover and get back to my baseline. That's good. That's quite quick. I had it in well, the whole family got it. We all got it at the same oh, time, no. and it was quite good because we all got to stay in the house together. But yeah. <laughs> um, I, well, my wife, who doesn't have any like medical problems, she was like in bed for a couple of days with it, mm-hmm. and I was like, t- I was shattered. I was totally mm. tired, but I never felt unwell. I then yeah. over over Christmas in the year, I've had a chest infection. I felt rotten with the chest infection. <laughs> I was like, COVID gave it. I was like, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the chest infection was worse. I was like, give me COVID anytime with that. Yeah. It was, it was so much easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, yeah. it's quite, it's good that, like you were saying, with the CTP didn't actually come off as bad as they were. Mm-hmm. It's like, which and it's good. hard. I mean, everyone responds so differently to the virus. I mean, I know there's some people who do unfortunately get really seriously ill whether or not they have CHD, um, you know, which is kind of the scary part of not quite knowing. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to to come through the infection without too many issues. Great. And are you working today? It's, or actually it's afternoon now. I was <laughs> get confused if I do yeah. to go in later or Yeah, so I'm actually, the nice thing about your last year of medical school is you have some vacation time and some research block time. So I'm actually on a research block right now. Um, So I've just been working from home. Um, I have a couple more rotations coming up in the months to come, but fortunately things are kind of winding down from a a schedule standpoint. So this past month has been um, just a lot of working from home, which has been nice. Great, and then heart-wise, you're all good. And yeah, absolutely. Fortunately, yes. That's great. But um, it's been great chatting to you and glad we're coming together. And I apologize for my poor oh, that's okay. Zoom skills. I'm, I'm <laughs> when I've not used it in so long, I get confused. No um, worries. <laughs> but I'm glad I managed to get you on and kick off my new season. And it's great meeting you. And I hope all the best for your you. medical career and your husband Thank as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Take care and enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Stuart. It was nice meeting you. Cheers.